You're listening to Health Call Live, your regular Saturday morning appointment with healthcare professionals, where treatment is always painless and there's never a copay. Here's your host, health and wellness correspondent Lee Kelso. So, yeah, I know we were all just terrified, horrified by the news of another mass shooting in Buffalo, New York. That young man who targeted African-Americans at a supermarket, he killed 10, injured others, and then held a gun to his throat until the police talked him into surrendering. We have since learned more about all of that and the fact that this young man had planned this attack quietly, carefully planned it for months. He researched until he found a zip code with a high concentration of black residents because racial violence, that was his goal. Now, I'm going to let others explore the social and political issues that the shooting raises because that's not what we do here. Instead, this morning, let's look at the psychology of mass murderers. And I think you're going to be surprised at some of what I've found. When you hear about these cases, you know, it's easy to assume that anyone who could do anything like that, so horrible as that, must be crazy. No normal person would be able to do something like that, right? Well, psychologist Dr. Gary Brucato says that's wrong. He studied hundreds of these cases for his book called The New Evil. Clearly, this young man who pulled the trigger in Buffalo is not normal, but Brucato says chances are if you met him in person, you wouldn't immediately be frightened or it wouldn't raise the hair on the back of your neck. I think there is a, a, a portion of people who commit mass murder that fall into the category of having certain um, personality like oddness, somebody that might be said to have like what we call a schizoid detachment, somebody who has a little quality of being off or peculiar, but they would not rise to the level of having a serious mental illness. These are soft features, whether they're genetic or personality in the individual. There is a subgroup of people like that uh, who might kind of give you a sense of discomfort uh, internally because you would find them peculiar or talking about odd things. But there are also people who commit mass murder who, who have a personality quality that is more psychopathic or they might be more paranoid and good at hiding the symptoms that they have or they might come across as hostile or hot-headed so that you know the answer is it's all over the map uh, to try to pigeonhole people who commit mass murder into one particular category is a mistake that i think is commonly made and it leads to a terrible um, um, incorrect fantasy that the people who commit these acts are clearly disturbed and that anybody would be able to know it looking at them from a mile away. So researchers like Dr. Brucato, who study these mass shootings, have collected really mountains of data about these crimes and these people. And it begins by carefully defining what is a mass shooting. Now, it sounds odd, but what happens every weekend, at least it seems like every weekend, on the streets of Chicago and some other cities where there are multiple bystanders injured by an exchange of gunfire on the street due to gang violence or whatever, those don't qualify. The researchers limit their study to cases where there are a minimum of four people killed in a single incident, and the victims must include strangers. Domestic violence doesn't count, so someone who kills the members of his family, that's not considered mass murder in their research. The Violence Project examined 180 cases that fit this very strict criteria. And the study authors interviewed several of the shooters who survived their attacks, and the data is really pretty interesting. 
80% of the shooters faced some form of mental or emotional crisis before the attack, but some of them had faced that very quietly. 40% had been in a state of emotional turmoil for many years, but only 13% were triggered just days before the shooting. So this speaks to what Dr. Brucato said about these shooters and their ability to avoid detection. They're able to keep their rage, their their pain, their suffering. They can keep it under control and out of the limelight well enough so that it really doesn't control all of their lives. Most of these shooters do show signs that something is wrong. 18% were able to completely mask all symptoms, but 60%, others say, they'd seen signs of increased agitation. 40% had abusive behavior, and they often had a history of behavior that was recognized by others as abnormal, but it was really kind of normal to them. Many of them come from violent families. There have been suicide in their families. Their parents may have committed suicide. Drug alcohol abuse is extremely common. 39% say they were isolated. Again, a trait that was kind of normal for them, but abnormal as we look at it as a group. All in all, the shooters displayed five different behaviors that would be considered a warning sign if someone had put it all together. But again, 70% of these mass shooters just didn't meet the definition for diagnosis of psychosis or mental illness, and so they flew under the radar, even though they were indeed mentally ill. So I threw a lot of numbers at you there. But the overall message here is that people who commit mass murder typically display a pattern of odd behavior, but as we saw in Buffalo, they're not so odd or so disturbing that it crosses the line to be considered severely mentally ill, and then therefore they qualify for hospitalization or confinement. Again, here's Dr. Gary Brucato. There's all kinds of problems that prevent um, things getting where they have to go. And then you have some people that decide to just call the authorities on people. Um, and, um, you know, and then the authorities might come and have a quick conversation with somebody and, and make a kind of snapshot decision about their safety. Uh, and, um, and so you'll find, for example, that getting one's hands on firearm is not so difficult for some people because of the way laws are written about, for example, they're state by state, but one might see something like, um, you know, that if a person has been hospitalized uh, or, or considered a danger to oneself or others in a certain number of years, they can't have a firearm, but that information doesn't make its way to the person that's selling the firearm or uh, the person, had, their symptoms have been subacute enough that they never come to the attention of a of a hospital and wind up hospitalized or, or declared a danger to self or others or red flagged in some way. I don't think it's surprising at all that people who have the kind of disturbances that are associated with um, mass shooting events, in particular mass murder events, do not come to the attention of authorities um, very much. Um, so I so I think, in, and there's also a lot of hindsight where there's a shooting and then people say, I told people, I tried to tell the police, I tried to, because remember that those systems are generally designed to deal with things when they are on fire, when there are acute issues. And if you go to a clinician or authority figure and you say, over the course of the past couple of years, 
so-and-so has been making odd statements and so forth, they're going to say, have they actually been violent? Have they, you know, have they had to go to the hospital? Are they talking about killing people now? Are they talking about suicide now in this moment? And unfortunately, if the answer is no, a lot of times they'll say, well, let's just kind of monitor it and, and so forth. And I think what needs to, to be revolutionized is the process by which we look at these soft signs and we have a place to kind of, you know, bring them to the attention of who needs to know, while also balancing that with, you know, constitutional matters, privacy concerns. And that's the rub. I think that's the rub, that you have a problem that is associated with soft signs that may gradually build over time in a context in which it wouldn't be appropriate or fair to individuals, because let's face it, the vast majority of them would be false positives, people who don't will never hurt anyone. Uh, so, so that's where it gets complicated, I think. And um, but at the very least, the, the increased evidence upon history of criminality, um, drug, alcohol use, and this kind of subacute stuff gives some sense of the scope of where we may have to move. So clearly it is a messy, messy situation. And so Dr. Brucato, they're landing on the most difficult part of the important problem, the need to protect all of us against people who plan quietly to strike out. They're not breaking laws. They're not hair on fire crazy. But smoldering beneath the surface is the potential for violence that none of us want to face. So what are the drivers? What, what are the thoughts here? We'll get to that and hear from another psych. We continue our look into the psychology of mass murders on the Health Call Live radio hour on WoWo. Welcome back to Health Call Live. If you've got a question, you don't have to give blood to get the answer. Just call us at 447-1190. Well, the mass murders of uh, predominantly black supermarket shoppers in Buffalo sparked this half hour's look at the mind of someone who could point a gun and pull the trigger again and again and again like that. I dug into some research that tracked the drivers that cause mass shootings, and that's really pretty important to understand. What is it that triggers these folks? Well, shooters say that what motivated them uh, has changed over time. The Violent Project, Violence Project reports that domestic or relationship issues are the trigger about 30% of the time for these people. The shooter's undergone a breakup in a relationship, and, and that's what causes them to snap in about one of three cases. Employment issues remain the number two driver. People feel slighted or unfairly treated in the workplace. And that remains the most common place where these shootings occur is on the job. What has changed, though, is that hate is becoming more of a motive. The Violence Project study was published back in 2019, and at that time, 19% of mass shootings involved hate against a specific group. So there's belief that that has gone up since then. In Buffalo, the shooter, of course, targeted a black neighborhood. And in that same week out in Southern California, a Chinese man targeted a Taiwanese church congregation, an apparent outgrowth of the anger over what's happening with the Taiwanese independent movement. A few years ago in the Pulse nightclub in Florida, homosexuals were targeted. So unfortunately, we don't know, though, what led to the worst mass shooting in U.S. history, and that was the attack on an outdoor music festival in Las Vegas. Sixty people killed there, hundreds wounded, and seems odd, but we still don't know much about the details behind that one. Another trend is that the shooters seem to be growing younger. The shooter in Buffalo was 18. Just about a year ago, a 19-year-old in Indianapolis killed eight former co-workers at a FedEx hub before he killed himself. Police say that young man's focus was proving his masculinity, and it was partially because 
He had failed to successfully live on his own and ended up moving back into his old house. Uh, the investigators learned that he wanted to be in the military and he'd been eating MREs, the meals ready to eat that soldiers eat and things like that. So this young man had some issues and wanted to prove his masculinity. So I talked with Angela Plowhead. She is a clinical psychologist who recently ran for a seat in Congress from the state of Oregon. And I asked her, what is this shift? What is it telling us? You know, I think there's a lot of stuff that's been going on. You know, we've seen this push in our schools that really, I think, has isolated kids. You know, instead of instead of bringing them together and really focusing on how people are the same and how people actually can work together and kind of celebrate how we're different, but not be bothered by how we're different, but yet still be okay with just looking at how we're the same as well. And it's really caused a lot of division. I think this is, there's been this huge push in the media to focus on, um, on racial justice issues and, and looking at race, but I think they've been going about it the wrong way. I think the way that it's happened has really caused a lot of division and really kept people from coming together. And, and that I think has, it's part of what you're talking about here with this young man saying, you know, I was really isolated. Um, you know, our, our, a lot of our children are made to feel as though they have some inherent something inherently wrong with them. And this, it doesn't really matter uh, what the race is. This is a piece that I think we've done a really poor job of in, in pushing a lot of the social justice pieces. So we, we've seen in this young man's writings that he felt he was deceiving his parents. He, he was keeping from them what he was planning. He hadn't told anybody in his family, but he had said at school uh, that he was planning a violent attack, and he was brought under psychological evaluation for that. New York is a red, a red flag law where they can take the weapons away from somebody deemed to be at risk. How did we miss this? You're a psychologist. What? How do you? How do you get to that point of when is danger possible to the extent that we need to remove social liberties? So. Uh I think you're exactly right, because we have the Second Amendment and the Second Amendment applies um, regardless of what's going on in our lives. Um, there are some instances in some states where they do have these red line laws, um, which I don't actually agree with. However, what I will say is that there is a place there for our intelligence communities, the FBI specifically, to step in and do something. So when we have these people that have demonstrated that they have a a desire to harm our nation, to harm other people in these mass shootings. I think there's a, there's been enough of a problem with the mass shootings um, throughout the last couple of decades that this should be on the radar of the FBI. There's already laws on the books that allow them to investigate terrorism. And, and this is what this is. It's an act of terrorism. And we see this repeatedly where people will have indicators and not actually be on the radar of law enforcement. And I think that's where we need to change it is that when people actually demonstrate that they are a danger and they're making statements about mass um, destruction, then that's when they should come onto the radar of our intelligence community. So are you suggesting that as a psychologist, if someone makes that admission to you, should we have a legal obligation to report that? Is that existing today? <laughs> those are those already exist. So we as 
most health professionals have a duty to inform if there is a legitimate risk to others. And this risk was already identified by the school. And, you know, this happened in the the last mass shooting that we saw happen um, a few months ago, where the school identified a risk, um, it was reported, and there was no follow-up after that. So this young man, he was he was identified, he was evaluated, he was only kept for a day and a half. But it, it takes a lot in order to keep someone, to admit them at all, actually, in our society, much less to keep them. So to keep them for a day and a half, um, where we're falling down in this nation is with a follow-up. So we have so few psychiatric beds that we don't, those people are so overwhelmed, those providers are so overwhelmed that they oftentimes are not able to do a, an appropriate follow-up plan. So they might have the plan in place, but then there's no follow-up after that to make sure that the plan was actually enacted. Um, and we have so few providers in the mental health arena that oftentimes you can't get in right away if you can find someone that can take you or they don't have a specialty that is appropriate for the problem. And so there are things that can be done. We could have reciprocity of licensure across states, um, which would help to alleviate some of those problems where, you know, you have states where there are more providers that could be assisting across state lines. Um, So that would be one thing that we could do to help with that issue, to make sure that there were enough providers to go around for to to manage the needs. Um, We could also be doing things like changing our Medicaid, I'm sorry, our Medicare rules. So that way you had more than just psychologists, uh, social workers and psychiatrists that could see people. So there are a lot of master's level providers that could be taking on patients that can't through that type of insurance. Yeah, so that is psychologist Dr. Angela Plowhead, and uh, you know, presenting her here doesn't mean that I'm endorsing her thoughts on this. It just uh, you know, let's have the discussion. And sadly, you know, we did not come to a conclusion about what to do about this giant problem. I didn't think anybody expected that today. But if there were an easy answer, we'd all be moving there because these mass shootings are an ongoing threat. But I think that the more that we talk about it and understand what drives these people, the closer we get to having an intelligent conversation that can take us someplace. If you want to learn more, I really encourage you to go take a look at theviolenceproject.org, and there you're going to find lots of stats about the problem. The researchers have analyzed 180 cases and put together a lot of the findings. In school shootings, for example, they are reporting that the average age is 18 years of age. Uh, all, almost all of them, almost 100% male. They did have a disciplinary record, but only less than half the time. Less than half had a violent history. Less than a third had a criminal record. They, they, they showed some mental health signs. 42% did, but still that means others did not. It's, a, it's a, just a messy situation that let's just all learn more about it and continue to keep Keep it on the radar. A post caught my attention this week that I think is meaningful. The Will Smith slap at the Oscar ceremonies has had a longer, more intense news cycle than the most recent shooting in Buffalo. I think that says something, don't you?
All right, that's all the time we have today. We hope that you'll be back again with us next week. If you'd like to hear more, you can always hit the major podcast services and find copies of the program there. Several of our video interviews go up on the website. That's healthcall.live. And I'm always interested in hearing from you, so you can always go to healthcall.live, use the contact form, and shoot me a message. Love to hear what you're thinking and topics you'd like to hear us cover. So we'll see you next Saturday morning for another edition of the Health Call Live Radio Hour on WoWo. You've been listening to Health Call Live. Watch a recording of today's program on the Health Call Facebook page or on the web at www.healthcall.live. Drop us a line to recommend a guest or suggest a topic for a future broadcast. Join us next Saturday at 9 a.m. for another edition of Health Call Live on WoWo 1190 a.m. and 107.5 FM. Podcasts by Federated Media.